Hey, hockey moms, welcome back to another exciting episode of the Blue Line Hockey Club. And now a word from tonight's sponsor. Official sponsor of the Blue Line Hockey Club is 24 Hockey. 24 Hockey is the leading company in the apparel industry in the hockey world. 24hockey.us, 24hockey.ca. We're offering a promotion code to our listeners right now 11BLHC15 OFF. That'll get you 15% off your next order at 24 Hockey. That's 11BLHC15 OFF. So get on their site, check it out t shirts, hats, hoodies. Uh, all kinds of custom gear. If you need something for men's league or your youth league, uh, it's a place to go. Uh, we're a big promoter of 2-4 Hockey, and uh, we've got all their gear at Blue Line Hockey Club. One more time, 11BLHC15 off. Use that code to get 15% off your next purchase at 24hockey.us and 24hockey.ca in Canada. One of the leading apparel companies out there. Check them out. 2-4 Hockey, wear the culture. Welcome back to another exciting episode of the Blue Lion Hockey Club. Episode 33 tonight, we have the usual suspects sitting in. Patrick Uncle Lardy Sullivan. What's up, Patrick? Aloha. And the local nerd on staff, Robbie P. Peters. Hey, how you mom and him? <laughs> and all-around sports guru and researcher, Derek D-Train. He too. What's up, D-Train? What's up, Sweenos? Yeah. And your host, Mark the Doctor Morley. Oh, Doctor. And we have a very special guest with us tonight, Kenny Roush from USA Hockey. Kenny, how's it going? Good after that. I feel like I need a special nickname. <laughs> <laughs> what is your nickname anyway? Rousher, Roushy, what do they call you? Uh, Roushy, I was called uh, Roach, the Roach Coach, because I got into coaching and Instead of saying Roach, it came out Roach Coach somehow. One of my teammates called me one time, and uh, the Roach kind of stuck once in a while. The Roach. All right, thanks. I think they called Robbie Roach for something else, but we won't get into that tonight. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> are you out in Colorado right now? I am. We got a little snow coming down tonight. Oh, man. Gosh. So you were up a little early this morning. We had a little confusion. Uh, Roush thought we uh, – we're going at 9.30 this morning, which is probably 7.30 out there, right? Yeah, Sorry about I, that. I was like, uh, oh, no, that's my fault. I'm sitting there looking at my clock. I'm like, oh, I haven't heard from these guys yet. I might want to touch base. And that's just me I'm uh, to look at my dyslexic with the AM, PM. Yeah, <laughs> that was my bad. Sorry. So let's get into a little bit about um, you were a uh, four-year player at BU, correct? Uh, that is correct. So where where are you uh, from yeah. originally though? Like where were you before college? Where'd you grow up? I I, I say Connecticut because at the time I had lived there the longest. I've actually <laughs> bounced all around. I was actually born in New Jersey, lived there till about seven seven and a half, and Michigan two years, Minnesota two years, and then in Connecticut, and then from Connecticut on to Boston for school. And once I got up there, I actually never really went back to Connecticut. So, <laughs> so you bounced around. And then I uh, got a. Yeah, and then got into coaching, and that led me to different places. And now uh, Colorado, obviously, hockey's taken me to a lot of different spots. But Colorado is now the tenth state that I have had residence in. Wow, nice! You played with some big guys yeah. at BU, right? Jay Pandolfo, Chris Jury, yeah. Mike Greer. Yep. Well, yeah, we had some pretty good teams. Um, I was actually very fortunate. My my freshman year, I actually I was a walk on and. Uh, 
at BU and, and not the typical recruited walk-on like they have nowadays. I was fortunate. I don't know if you guys remember the triple overtime game in 91 between BU and Northern Michigan, uh, that Northern Michigan one. Uh, that team graduated, I think, nine seniors, and it happened to be an Olympic year the next year. So uh, Tony Amonti actually signed a contract. Sean McGecker makes the Olympic team. Scott Lachance makes the Olympic team. And kind of an overweight, uh, pretty productive freshman named Keith Kachuk. They did not expect to make the Olympic team. And luckily for me, he did. So instead of needing nine guys to replace, they needed about 14. And I was, uh, I was one of about six or seven guys vying for that 14 spot. And I just kept showing up to practice and was never told to go home. So kind of a, another reason why they called me the Roach. I kind of just showed up and never got rid of me. <laughs> Now, when you were at BU, you actually uh, were there for the tragedy of Travis Roy. Um, for the listeners, um, Travis Roy actually, uh, he was a freshman, right? And um, 11 seconds of his NCAA career um, fell into the boards headfirst. And um, now he's um, very popular in the hockey community, does a lot of foundations. Um, so were you there that night, Kenny? I actually was not. We actually, we were recruiting him my senior year. Uh, so he matriculated the year after. I was not at that game. I was trying my hand at pro hockey for a brief, uh, really brief stint. Uh, but my parents actually happened to be at the game. because uh, What they did was they brought the parents of the senior class from the year before back to raise a national championship banner. So I remember, remember like it was yesterday. And it, obviously it was just pre-internet days and those kind of deals that I remember calling my parents. Uh, asking how the game went because, you know, back then you couldn't even really get college hockey scores on ESPN or whatever. I don't know if you guys remember the old Wimple line. You'd have to call <laughs> Wimple up in northern Michigan to get college hockey scores. And I remember calling them excitedly asking how the banner raising went and how the game went. And they're like, oh, you obviously haven't heard the news yet. And I'm like, no, what are you talking about? And by that time, the next day, it was kind of national news and on in USA Today on ESPN. And, um, so uh, just a, a sad, sad thing. And obviously got to know Travis a little bit after that because uh, the next year I actually started coaching at, at BU and he would have been a junior that year. Um, and he was around quite a bit and got to know him and um, just a special individual to be able to deal with the things he's dealt with and not only deal with them, but put the positive spin on it and be uh, such an, a, a role model to other people and you know, an activist and all that kind of stuff and raising money for research. And uh, it's really, really quite inspiring what he does. Yeah, everything. He puts on a big wiffle ball tournament in Vermont every year. And uh, on top of everything else he does. But, uh, yeah, he could have just, you know, sat back. And he, uh, he's he been very active and does a lot of things for the community. Yeah, well, there's no doubt about it. And, that, you know, it's not only the wiffle ball game. They have charity games in Boston and actually, uh, the captain of uh, our national championship team, Jacques Joubert, actually sent me a note earlier this week asking if I could help uh, round up uh, Eddie Olchuk, the coach of Celebrity Game in Chicago, uh, for the Travis Roy Foundation. Unfortunately, Eddie's got a uh, Blackhawk game to call that night, so he can't make it. But, uh, <laughs> you know, Travis is just out there just, you know, beating the path and getting a lot of things done for some good things. Kenny, after you uh, finished up at VU, what was your coaching career um, after your pro year, pro career stint? Uh, um, I actually started, like I said, at, at uh, Boston University as a, a volunteer assistant. Um, and I'll tell you a little bit of a funny story about that. After that. Um, 
So I go to BU and then to Colby College and then to Niagara University for a couple of years. I was part of that uh, team that had started almost from nothing. I came in there in year three, at year four, uh, finished number eight in the country, made it to the national tournament, kind of an unbelievable, just uh, a whole story in itself. And from there, I went to UMass Lowell and then a year at Babson before taking the job here at uh, USA Hockey. Were you with uh, Coach Smith at Niagara? Uh, no, I was with uh, Blaze McDonald and Dave Burkholder. Okay. Yeah, we had uh, we had Coach Smith on. He's at RPI now. Yeah. Oh yeah, he was at Canisius, not Niagara. Yeah. Oh, Dave Canisius. Smith, uh, yeah. He's done, he's, yeah, he's done some good things, and uh, he's uh, does a lot of speaking at coaching clinics on on behalf of USA Hockey as well, and does a great job for us. So, how'd you get into USA Hockey? Um, I had coached in the select festivals. Uh, actually, my my very first coaching gig, even before I coached at Boston University, I was. As I was playing, I actually helped my father coach a, a youth team uh, back when I was in high school and would help him coach, you know, squirts and peewees, that kind of stuff. Uh, my dad coached me my whole life. And so I coached there. And then when I was in college, I worked a lot of hockey camps and got to know a bunch of people and got involved in what was back then called the Mass Satellite Program, which is now kind of like the Massachusetts District Program, the Player Development Program. And I started coaching at the national festivals at the uh, the ripe age of 22 or 23, I believe I was. The first group I had was the Massachusetts 1981 birth dates when they were 15 years old, which included uh, the Ricky DiPietro in, in that group and a couple of uh, pretty good players. Um, and me and Mark Davis, actually, believe it or not, were, were the co-coaches of that team. So uh, Mark and I got our starts in coaching at the same time and uh, just coached in those for, oh, she's probably close to 15 years and became really good friends with a lot of the guys who worked at the national office in USA Hockey back then. And as the advent of the ADM came around, I was one of the first people that they presented the idea to and asked what I thought because they knew I, my, my passion lies, uh, lied in development. And Kevin McLaughlin, who's my boss, said, you know, when this thing gets off the ground, and if it gets off the ground, would you be interested in, in coming out this way and, you know, changing paths a little bit? And I was absolutely all for it. And haven't looked back and loved every minute of it. So one of the things we wanted to ask you about was the um, the ADM model and, you know, where did that come from and where does the USA Hockey try to get their coaching techniques from? Are they trying to take it from countries that have, like, certain success in different areas or is that something that they're just trying to make USA Hockey their own uh, model or is it modeled after other countries? Believe it or not, uh, Kevin and Ken Martell, who's the technical director of the ADM, Went to a uh, symposium, I believe it was up in Calgary, would have been probably around 2007-ish. And they listened to a couple of people speak, Dr. Richard Way, Isvan Baghi, and a guy by the name of Dr. Stephen Norris. And basically it was a, it was a seminar and a symposium on long-term athlete development. And the light bulb kind of went off for them and... Um, realized it was, it was kind of what we were missing. We, we, we had gotten to the point we were putting the cart before the horse a little bit, a little bit focused on the end goal rather than the process. And they go and speak to these three guys after the symposium. And it's, it's held in Calgary, like I said. And I believe Dr. Richard Way is the only Canadian of the group. Dr. Norris is uh, English and Istvan Bayi is Israeli. But they're the kind of the godfathers of LTAD and a lot of child research and such, and they start talking to them and they're right in Calgary. And they said, you know, 
we don't care if it's USA, Sweden, Finland, Russia, whoever it is, we will help whoever wants to be helped. And so those two guys struck up a relationship with those, those three. And obviously one thing led to another and uh, a lot of research, a lot of blood, sweat and tears kind of went into it and a couple proposals here, there and the other. And next thing you know, I guess it gets presented to the board of directors at USA Hockey and it gets accepted. And, and here we are today. Yeah, a lot of controversy at, at the beginning that we hear from the minor hockey level. Obviously, all these coaches saying and it's the way they played and they don't want to change the way they practiced and the way they did things when they were the, the player. Um, you know, the big cross-ice change and, and the younger kids and stuff like that. Did you guys see a lot of pushback at the uh, USA hockey level? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, and, and the funny thing is, is a lot of people – know that it's right for kids and but believe it or not one of the biggest pushbacks from adults is them saying to us well you can't tell me what to do <laughs> you know <laughs> even though we we're in it solely for the purpose of what's best for the kids and and you, you've heard me speak at a couple of uh, coaching clinics i do a presentation on basically taking a look at how usa hockey does sparing against the rest of the world and where we were at and the funny thing is is when we start the adm in 09 and then 2010, the Olympics roll around and we finished second in the Olympics. We win our second gold medal ever in the World Juniors in Saskatoon that year. So people are like, hey, things are going great. What do we need to change anything for? And I started delving a little bit deeper into it. And yeah, we're doing okay. Um, but when you look at the, the resources we have versus some of the other countries, we're just okay. we're just doing okay. You know, we should be doing much better than we are. And we in our national office and most people around our country want us to be the best hockey playing country in the world and as good as we can be. And, you know, we're not quite there yet and, you know, we're never going to be satisfied. So we're always looking for ways to get better. And obviously this is steeped in science and research, not just stuff when we say, Hey, let's try this and see if this works. You know, we've, we've done research, a lot of data, a lot of analytics, and it, it does truly show what is best for kids. Obviously the more touches, the more ice time, you know, and less standing and sitting around and, uh, you know, coaches shortening benches and that stuff at, at the younger ages, the better off. And the, the funniest thing is about it is, and Lou Vero's in our office still, and he'll walk around and mutter to himself sometimes about the ADM. And you know, I was doing this 40 years ago in Brooklyn, New York, and he's he's right, you know, you know, because they didn't have full ice sheets and stuff. So little kids did play in smaller areas. You think about it, when you were a little kid and went and played on a pond, you know, kids never shovel off a 200 by 85 foot space and play hockey. You know, they, they, they play in a smaller area because that's that's what's normal for them. So, Kenny, you know, as the director um, of youth hockey for USA Hockey, talk to us a little bit about, you know, you're talking about things like this half-ice program, stuff like that. Talk to us about the thought process and, and the idea making that goes on behind the scenes to develop these policies and procedures that you put out there. Uh, you mean from, the, like, the whole USA Hockey volunteer our structure is that what you're yes. kind yes. of getting at yeah you know and it's you know usa hockey is primarily a volunteer based organization we have you know uh, 34 affiliates within 12 districts and within those districts you have board of directors and board of governors and and so forth so anything that needs to be passed is whether it be a legislative change a rule change has to be submitted by someone it can be submitted by anyone actually but and then it's got to go through the proper channels through uh, whatever committee it goes through. And then it gets, either gets to the floor or doesn't get to the floor. And if it gets to the floor, there's usually some, some discussion. Um, and then, you know, our board of directors votes to pass it or not. You know, that's, 
That's just really as simple as it gets, but it can also be complicated at times. So, I mean, that's really the process. So when rule change years come along and if you want to change something, pay attention and sub submit those things and, you know, talk to the proper people in, in your areas and then it'll get from the local areas to potentially the national areas and uh, the national committees and councils that uh, various people sit on and things get brought forth and they get discussed and people think they're either a good idea or a bad idea or we need to discuss this further and, and see where it goes. Yeah, it's almost like a mini government to have set up with the, the different uh, states. That's exactly what it's like. It's exactly what it's like. You know, you have the affiliates are like the state government and the national office is like the federal government and everything must filter through the state government first before it gets to a national level. Yeah, you hear a lot of, but we're just getting involved and we all have young kids and we're getting involved in minor hockey. And then, you know, we hear people complaining about having to go to the clinics and having to take modules and, um, you know, all the uh, work that they're asking volunteers to do, you know, to coach these kids. And, you know, a lot of it, where I see it, like my kids play lacrosse, they play soccer, um, both of those very unorganized, no drills are given to coaches, no coaching like techniques or it's like, all right, this kid wants to coach. He's going to coach his team. All right, you're good. We got this guy's going to coach this level. And then they just give him a whistle and they go. So, I mean, the effort that USA Hockey is putting into developing coaches in these, and helping develop players, it seems to be above and beyond any other sport that I see where we are anyway up in upstate New York. So, I mean, I don't see how that can be a bad thing to help give these people the tools to help develop better hockey players. But you still hear it. You know, all the time from different people that are getting to USA Hockey and the bitching about um, all the stuff they have to do to become a coach. So, I mean, we're even how how long has it been? Like ten years almost that the ADM's been going. Yeah, this would be uh, the actually the tenth year coming up will be in nineteen because we we actually it was but we actually had a discussion in our office the other day that first wave of guys that got hired, myself included, was the summer of. Uh, 2009, which, you know, this will be coming up on 2019 next summer. So that'll be a 10 year anniversary um, going forward. But yeah, you, you're right. And this is, I'll take this a couple minutes here to do a little bit of a humble brag as far as, you know, where we are as a national governing body. And when you talk to other NGBs, whether it be USA soccer, uh, USA lacrosse, uh, um, USA basketball, USA football, uh, USA swimming, they all know that we are out ahead of a lot of this stuff. And as a matter of fact, the USOC has actually now adopted the ADM as their own, not just USA Hockey's. And every NGB now must have a, their LTAD ADM plan submitted to the USOC within the next two years. Most of them already have them out. Uh, so when it comes to coaching education, you're right. I, I actually have coached youth lacrosse before. And like you said, you know what it took for me to become a youth lacrosse coach? I, I missed the meeting. <laughs> So, so I, I missed the meeting and hey, that, that guy can coach. Oh, great. Uh, so, so I got signed up to coach across. Um, but uh, they've actually gotten a lot better too. They have levels one, two, and three clinics and, and soccer has clinics as well, but they're, they're not mandatory like ours are. Um, the funny thing is, is, you, you know, the higher level coaches in those sports actually have to take some serious coaching education. But the coaches at the youngest level don't, which is kind of, almost kind of ass backwards, right? Uh, whereas we, we've done a really good job, I, I feel like, of kind of educating people. And we've gotten to the point with the age-appropriate modules. If, if you coach eight-year-olds, this is what you should know. You know, if you're coaching 10-year-olds, this is what you should know. Now, 
is what we do perfect? No, by any means. We could always improve and we're always looking to improve. But, you know, we are kind of world leading right now in what we're doing. And I trust me, I know the modules are long. I'm in the modules and I've had to take all the modules. So I know they're long because I've coached every age group. So I, I know the extent that people go through. And I think the biggest reason that people uh, kind of complain and whine a little bit is just because it takes time and time is a, is a commodity these days. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, D-Train, you want to get into a little bit of the question that you had for Kenny on the cost of hockey and stuff like that? Yeah, I was just kind of curious what USA, I mean, hockey obviously is a very expensive sport. So um, is there anything USA Hockey is doing? There's a lot of kids probably that may not have, I guess, the resources to, uh, to their, their parents may not have the resources to put them, you know, keep them going to these higher levels of hockey and stuff. So is there anything USA Hockey is doing to, ensure some of these talented kids who may not have the resources um, have the opportunity to, to participate? Uh, well, we do try hockey for free days and we do some, uh, you know, hockey weekend across America, which is now uh, morphed into hockey week across America. So we're trying to get it more into the mainstream. Um, as far as controlling the prices and the cost to play, that's really tough from the level that we're at because, you know, we don't run the local rinks and we don't, control the manufacturers of equipment and we don't, you know, we don't control the cost of sticks, but, but what we're trying to do is, is educate people in ways that they can make it more affordable, you know, by instead of one team practicing with 15 players on an ice sheet, get two or three teams out there with 30 to 40 kids. And right there, you've cut the cost of ice in half, right? Um, you know, use equipment sales, those kind of things. And, and being able to give back, we actually have a stick campaign at the fundraiser where, you know, you can donate X amount of dollars and that gives X amount of free sticks to a local association. So we're trying to take those steps. It's just really, really hard to do from a from a national government body you know, standpoint. Yeah, and I think that's always been a crutch for, for hockey. You only have a certain amount of people that can afford it. And um, some of the you know inner city areas don't have as much hockey and they don't have rinks. They don't have the ice time. Like we're in upstate New York and there's two rinks in every town and ice time is cheap. And you know, everybody likes to play hockey because it's more accessible. So, you know, yeah, no doubt. And, yeah. And, and, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, we know some people across the country are also trying to get into, at least for the younger ages and with, in conjunction with some NHL clubs. And the NHL clubs are helping a lot, too, with, you know, take the Penguins. You know, you got kids, little rookies, and Dallas has Madonna's little rookies where they're giving free equipment to kids that are trying the game. But, but also, you know, floorball is a gateway sport, you know, floorball in, in schools and elementary schools and you know floorball is extremely popular over in europe and they actually have professional leagues over there but that's a, another inexpensive way to kind of get involved and then kids decide hey i, I kind of like this game maybe at age six seven eight i want to try it a little bit more and then you know cost prohibitiveness you, you, you see if you really want to get into it so let's switch gears a little bit um you know one of the things like if you had to you know pick something that usa hockey at the um, more experienced levels struggling at would it be goaltending it seems like the the usa goaltenders are you know not some of the top goaltenders in the nhl is that something that uh the usa for, hockey works for, at? For, yeah we, i mean there's there's two things i mean goaltending is a huge emphasis right now uh we actually just lost our adm manager of uh goaltending phil ozier who uh, just took a job with the tampa bay lightning he was with us for almost three years and did some fabulous things uh, instituted goalie development coordinators in every district, uh, more 
fried goalie for free stuff and more education there. And they have a, a hashtag and a slogan called 51 and 30, where their goal is to have American goalies play 51% of the minutes by 2030 in the National Hockey League. So goaltending is a big push. We've had a couple of really good ones, but not enough. And you've heard me speak a little as well at coaching clinics. Uh, my big push too is, is goal scoring. We, we, we don't have enough goal scorers in the National Hockey League because when we get to international competitions, if, you know, Phil Kessel's not scoring or, um, you know, now it's going to be Austin Matthews and Jack Eichel, but if those three guys aren't scoring, uh, you know, who's going to score goals for us? So, or Patrick Kane, you know, we, we need better depth as far as goal scoring goes and not just guys who can get pucked out and get pucked in. And, you know, I cringe. And one of the reasons you'll see is the reason we struggle at the higher levels of goal scoring walk into any rink in America and you're going to see a handful of peewee games that finish at two, two to one, right. You know, you know, with a, with a 13 year old in net or a 12 year old in net, I'm thinking you should probably be able to get more than two goals past in a, in a, in a game. So <laughs> the fact that we can't do it at that level translates and, you know, we'll struggle to score at 12. You're going to struggle to score at 14 and on up. So, you know, goalies should be struggling up until about 17, 18 years old. And when you, when you look at it in the grand scheme of things, goalies actually don't typically mature till they're about 25 years old. So we should be scoring more goals as young kids and coaches should be encouraging that as well. So that's something that the ADM is probably trying to develop as far as like skills and teaching the players how to shoot and stuff like that, or as far as goal scoring. Yeah, it, it is a knack, but you know, the, if you're, if you're playing more small area stuff at eight years old and 10 years old and 12 years old, you know, you're going to be in a position to score more. I actually, once one of the years I was coaching 10 U hockey, I was talking to one of my goalies and, you know, we did a lot of cross ice stuff in practice and then a lot of small area stuff and battle drills and tight area stuff and where you goalies see a ton of action. And then, you know, we'd get to a game and I asked him, you know, what do you think about this compared to a game? And, you know, you can see 10-year-old goalies are boarding games, right? Because they see, you know, not a lot of shots, but it takes a 10-year-old a long time to get down the ice. And he says to me, oh, I like playing full ice better. I was like, seriously? And he's like, yeah, by the time they skate, he, this, is a, this is a 10-year-old goalie's perspective. By the time they skate all the way down, they're too tired to shoot at me. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. It seems like it's been, you know, when you look at the uh, the top goal scorers in the NHL and, you know, a lot of Europeans and Canadians and the Americans aren't always there. Um, what is the NHL doing with NHL hockey? I know they partnered with you guys, don't they, to like help develop these players to get more Americans in the league and get them in the top 10 in scoring? Is that something that they're donating money to to help develop? Absolutely. Um, up until the, the advent of the, the American development model, USA Hockey actually got almost zero dollars in support from the NHL. So like when you look at back, you go back 10, 15 years ago, every kid that makes it to the NHL, you know, through the Canadian Hockey League, right? So a kid plays for uh, the Oshawa Generals and he makes it to the NHL. The Oshawa Generals get X amount of dollars from, from the National Hockey League, which goes to, Can well, goes to the Canadian Hockey League and then it filters back down to Oshawa. We didn't have anything like that because what's our highest brand of hockey is NCAA and they're not taking money from the National Hockey League, right? So right. we actually we actually had almost a free development system, even though at the time, 10, 15 years ago, NCAA hockey was producing NHL hockey players, but not at the rate that it is now. Um, but so now, you know, we're kind of on equal footing with uh, 
some of the other federations where, you know, Hockey Canada gets money for NHLers, where we don't necessarily get money for players getting to the National Hockey League. They've given us basically a lump sum each year and a grant, a uh, form of grant to help fund the ADM, help fund the national team development program. So, yes, I, I think NHL owners realize that they'd like more American stars in the National Hockey League because, you know, does a person in Phoenix want to watch, grow up and, and watch Austin Matthews play or does he want to watch someone from Magnitogorsk play, right? <laughs> from where? <laughs> Magnitogorsk, way out <laughs> east in Russia. Exactly. Uh, that's, it's true. I mean, we're, we're in this podcast game and, like, part of the issue for us sometimes is just pronouncing the name on the back of the jerseys. You know, it's like... <laughs> Christ, what's that guy's name? Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and, you know, the way you look at it today, you get, uh, you know, the 23, the 31, or no, 24, the 31 clubs are, are in in the United States. So, yeah, it's it's, uh, it's an American fan base now. And, you know, I, I actually like to say, like, to me, there are no more untraditional markets. Kids can play anywhere and go up and be a hockey player. Yeah, we're right. seeing a lot more of it. Like, St. Louis has kind of become a hotbed. Uh, we talk about it all the time, all the studs coming out of there. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, that's, you know, that's a, in direct correlation to Keith Kachuk, Al McInnes, and, and some of the guys that retired in St. Louis and stayed there. And, you know, the funny thing is, is Keith and Al were both rough and tumble players. And, you know, Keith scored a lot of goals, but he was known for his tenacity and his toughness. And he basically taught skill, nothing but skill for his kids growing up. And, you know, proper body contact. He, they were actually some of our biggest proponents when uh, the whole issue of moving body checking from 12 years old to 14 years year old came up. Al McKinnis was one of the first guys to speak up and be like, hey, I'll do whatever you guys need me to do as far as uh, passing this rule. Right. And Al's kid became a very big player. And, and Keith's boys are actually obviously big, big boys. But at 12 years old, I remember Keith saying to me that he was concerned uh, about Brady because he was so tiny. You know, so he's like, yeah, I don't want him to get intimidated and knocked off pucks because just just because another kid grew faster than him. You know, now you look at Brady now, he's a monster. But, you know, when he was 12 years old, you know, skill and hockey sense is what kept him in the game. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of people, that's another controversial thing for the older older hockey players out there, thinking that kids need to hit younger ages and stuff like that. So there's always pushback yeah, from the yeah. old school hockey guys. And, oh, no and doubt. Time. There's no <laughs> doubt. Coaches that uh, well, ADM. The old, uh, well, it's not how we did it when I was growing up. Exactly. Right? So I was trying to tell these guys a little bit about when you talked about, uh, like, the, the amount of players in some of these European countries and, like, the number of hockey players in Canada, the number of hockey players in the United States, and then, like, the drastic drop-off from those two countries down to some of these other countries and the amount of players they put in the NHL. And I couldn't remember the stats or anything, but maybe you could just fill these guys in and how amazing it is of how many players they can actually put in the NHL with the few numbers they have to work with. Yeah, yeah, and I don't actually have my presentation up in front of me, but I've got one of those brains that uh, uh, works in weird ways. But, uh, you know, Hockey Canada right now, for you're looking at players under the age of 20 registered. Hockey Canada is about 455,000 or so. If you went back five years ago, they were at about 520,000. So they've lost 70,000 kids in the last five years. We've actually grown quite a bit for, for that age. Uh, we're up to about 315,000 kids at 20 and under. 
The next closest country is Russia, uh, that's, which is about 85 to 90,000. And then it, it drops all the way down to Sweden at about 45,000, Finland at about 38,000. Then the Czech Republic is about 25,000. So to put that in context, if you took uh, our country and divided it up by states, you know, Minnesota would be about 48,000 or so. Massachusetts would be about 35 to 40,000 or so. And you look at, uh, you know, what those states do versus what some of these other countries do. And it's not even close. And uh, Minnesota does a fantastic job of producing hockey players. And, you know, coincidentally, they are still one of the few places in our, around our country that has a community-based system, right? So kids go and they grow up playing for their town team until they're a certain age and they play high school hockey. And for the most part, now there's, there's some, some other AAA stuff creeping in over there. But for the most part, they do have a kind of a European model. But Minnesota last year had 54 National Hockey League. Uh, Sweden, with almost the same amount of players, probably about the same geographical size, had 89 National Hockey League players. And now you also got to keep in mind that Sweden has their own pro league back home too. So there's some guys playing in the Swedish Elite League that could come over here and still play in the National Hockey League. So, you know, what they do and what Finland does, uh, it, it's it's quite scary when you think about it as far as pure development goes, as, as pure as, you know, talent pool. Do you believe that the, um, you know, the kind of the getaway in this country from the uh, kind of the community programs is a detriment or, or a positive? I mean, you see everybody's kind of playing on the, like these. When we grew up, we all played Tito's, Pee Wee's, Bantam, Midgets, you know, whatever, but then on to high school. You, don't, you just don't see that anymore. You know? I mean, so you see, like, you know, basically all-star teams after you, you know, from a very, very young age. So do you think that's a detriment or a positive? I, you know, there's a lot of ways to skin a cat when you're talking about player development. You know, I'm not going to say one is better than the other, but what it comes down to is what's the experience you get within one or the other. You know, sure. for some kids, for some kids, the the travel programs or you know, whatever you, words you want to use. I, I, I just struggle to use the word elite and such with young kids, but you know, the, the, the higher end programs, they're going to work for some kids because you're getting some high end coaching. But when you get high end coaching at those ages too, and you get some guys who might be more focused on winning for the adult ego, you, you know, the top, the top three kids on those teams are certainly going to get a lot better because they're going to play a lot more. And whereas maybe a bottom end kid, on a 14-year-old team, he's not going to get power play time. He's not going to kill penalties. He's not going to get a regular shift. He's not going to be out in the last three minutes of the game for the sake of winning a game or winning a tournament. So it can be both a positive and a detriment depending on what the personal experience. Yeah, for sure. So I think it's kind of, it's kind of uh, you look at it, at least from my perspective, you know, I, I don't know. I, I kind of look at it like it's more of a detriment, honestly, but um, – that's just, I guess that's an old school opinion. You know, it's, it's, uh, you got kids at a really young age, like playing, you know, 50, 55 hockey games a year, like when they're like nine years old, 10 years old. It's just like, what the hell are we doing to these guys? But, um, either way, right. yeah, is what it is, I guess. Right. And, and you know, if yeah. they were, pl- if they were playing those 50 games and then they were just playing to play, that's yeah. okay. But, yeah. but when you, when, like I said, when, when adult egos get in the way, and you're playing 50 games and they've got to win 10 of these games to get to States. And because of that, you know, the bench gets shortened and certain kids don't get to play. That's where the issues creep in. And, you know, it goes back to, you know, the coaching, the coaching education piece of it all is, 
you know, what are we really doing this for? You know, are we doing this for ourselves? Are we doing this to make players better? You know, I actually think I've become a pretty good hockey coach right now. And I've made this comment at multiple coaching clinics I've, I've gone to. And um, I don't know if you got to saw that because I do a couple of different presentations. I tell that I actually became a much better hockey coach when I stopped caring if I won or lost. And, yeah. and I, quite frankly, like, I put my head at the, on the pillow at night. If my 14-year-old team wins a game or loses a game, I'm still sleeping the same way because like I know I'm trying to do what's right for the kids. And, you know, if we win, great. If we lose, even sometimes even better, they learn a lesson from it. You know, I've actually had buddies of mine who are like, oh, you know what, really, really starting to believe what you guys do. But, you know, at the end of the game, I, I only play certain kids. I'm like, why? He goes, well, we, the kids really want to win. I'm like, well, I can guarantee you the kid that you're sitting wants to win just as bad as the kid you're playing, right? So I actually, I actually said to him, I'm like, do you sleep better? Or worse, if your team wins or loses. Well, no, but I said, well, what are you doing it for? Right? And, you know, he was, well, you know, I, yeah, I guess I want to win. I'm like, but you're not playing. Your playing days are way over, bud. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. I mean, and that's been like with minor hockey, you know, fights in the stands and the parents want to win and the coaches want to win and, you know, the kind of kids just want to play. You know, it's always been a stigma for minor hockey. Yeah, for sure. It's it's not just minor hockey. It's every sport, right? I mean, you turn on the news, you see football coaches fighting, you see softball parents fighting. It's it, it's insanity. You know, we we call it in our office winning the race to the wrong finish line. Like, yeah, great, you won this twelve year old tournament, but like, what are you teaching the kids, and what are what are they all getting out of it? What's their experience? So, Kenny, let's uh, uh, switch gears, wrap it up a little bit here, and um, who do you root for in the NHL? Um. As a kid, I was a Red Wing fan because, like I said, when I moved to Detroit, I was about eight years old, and a young guy by the name of Steve Eiserman came along. So I, I rooted for Detroit as a kid. Um, by the time I got to college, the lockout happened and all this stuff. And, you know, when you're, when you're trying to make your own way in hockey, you kind of lose a little bit of that. So the, the simplest answer right now is who I root for is, depending on the game, who I know in the game. You know, if the New Jersey Devils are playing, I'm rooting for the New Jersey Devils because uh, Johnny Hines is a good friend of mine. Mike Greer is a good friend of mine. Tommy Fitzgerald is a good friend of mine. Uh, so that was one of the, the funny stories that I was going to tell you earlier when I became the coach at, at Boston University and then Colby College. Um, and then Lowell, John Hines, was, was there along with me for a little bit of that. And uh, I actually hosted Hines on his recruiting trip. So, you know, just depending on which path you take, you never know where you're going to end up. But, like, I'm watching, I got NHL Network on right now, and tonight was a tough one. Devils and, not the Devils, the uh, Calgary playing um, Buffalo. So I'm rooting for Buffalo because Carter Hutton's in net, and he was a former player of mine, former recruiter of mine at UMass Lowell. So it, it really depends on who I'm watching and what the circumstances are or who I root for. Well, that's pretty cool to get all of these people. <laughs> Pat, one of our... Uh, it, it all, 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 it, all it means is I'm getting old. <laughs> right. Uh, Pat Sullivan that's on with us tonight is his uh, nephew is Jordan Greenway, so we've been following him quite a bit. And uh, oh, very cool, very we've been, cool. Yeah, the Greenway boys are a great story. Yeah, so we're we're uh, Minnesota fans over here now. Never thought I'd say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, like you say, you're, they're, you're Minnesota fans for certain nights. That's yeah, right. Exactly. So Patrick, you uh, uh, got any questions for Kenny before we let him go? I don't. Thanks for coming on, Kenny, and. Uh... 
talking to the listeners about uh, USA Hockey. Oh, I appreciate you guys having me. Yeah, it's been it's been anytime, fun, man. We'll get you back on sometime. Anytime you get to sit around and talk hockey is a good time, right? That's, That's right. Sure. Absolutely. All right, Kenny, you have a good night, and uh, sorry for getting you up so early. <laughs> uh, no, I was up. I was up anyway. <laughs> like I, like I said, I'm getting old. I don't I don't sleep as much as I used to. Yeah, same here. <laughs> All right, have a great night, guys. All right, All right appreciate man. it. Be good. All right, take care. Okay, boys. Great interview with Kenny tonight. That was a nice perspective of what's going on at USA Hockey and, you know, getting it from the national office out in Colorado. There's not too many times we get to speak to people out in the the uh, national office for, for USA Hockey. So there's a lot of controversy going on, what USA Hockey does for young coaches and, you know, young development and all the changes that have been made over the last 10 years. Um, you know, some people are very uh, pro USA Hockey ADM and other people obviously are stuck in their ways, but a lot of it makes sense if you think about it, the smaller area games and, you know, cross ice for little kids and trying to get them to develop skills and not having them skate up the whole ice. So, you know, it's good stuff. You know, if you've been into any clinics, the listeners have been, I'm sure any coaches out there have had to go to them. Had to go there. It's a pain in the ass, but you, you do get something out of it and it help, helps you become a better coach. Yeah, I was going to get into, uh, you know, the whole – ADM model and um, you know what what's that based off and to participate in states or higher level or the state end of the year tournaments you have to be affiliated with USA Hockey there's no other way around it unless you form another league I did really want to get in, into that with him just because you know I think like you guys were talking earlier that um it's organized. It's more organized than lacrosse. It's more organized than soccer. It's more organized than t-ball or baseball. So what they're doing, to me, um, there's no other way around it, right? To get organized, I guess you have to do this. Um, you know, money comes into play. Obviously, you have to be a USA member every year. But, um, you know, if you sit there and think both sides – the structure part takes over. I mean, you have to be structured in order to, um, you know, grow the sport. So, so I mean, it's definitely, I mean, from where they were 10 years ago to where they are now, I mean, I just went to level four, like Placid. Um, I mean, a two day event, I think we had 10 speakers, you know, high level speakers, high level, high level coaches teaching you, uh, ways to teach kids and the best way to, to help kids get better. And a lot of the emphasis, emphasis, they, give you is um make sure the kids have fun you know and yeah. try, to, try to make sure they're having fun out there and they want to come back you know because they want to keep people in the sport and just like any sport you have the most kids play at the youngest age and then as they get older they dwindle out and you're left with one team where they started like at mosquitoes and messina there might be three teams but by the time they get to squirts and peewees there might be only two teams because half the kids don't have fun and they're not getting ice time because they're shortening the events in the third period and they give up on it. So they're teaching that stuff. They're trying to teach coaches. It's not about winning. It's about having fun. It's about developing players. And a lot of it is some players don't develop when they're mosquitoes and squirts. I mean, they, they develop when they're peewees and bantams, you know, so if they don't get a chance when they're younger and they quit, you know, they they never really develop. So it's hard to get a kid to develop that young. So I mean, yeah. a lot of the stuff is good, not just the drills, but the mentality they're trying to push is also there too. So yeah, it's tough. It's, it's a tough conversation with anyone, but Which the numbers are getting better. 
as far as what's happening and just look around the league. You guys, real quick, don't you guys think hockey is, you know, it's kind of a challenging youth sport, though, because, you know, as a parent, so, like, let's say you're a parent strapped for cash or whatever, you're probably not going to put your kid in hockey, you know? So it's, you can either throw a pair of cleats on them and let them play soccer, or let them play baseball, buy them a mitt, you know, or, you know, whatever. So I, I think that's kind of a challenge that USA Hockey and everything else has going on right now, probably is just the financial aspect of it. it that's, it's a really financially strapping sport. So don't get me wrong. I think it's the best sport on earth. I really do. It's just, um, I think that's a challenge of it for sure. Parents need good credit. Yeah, there you go. Credit cards are your friend at that, at that time. Yeah. I, uh, I was on a mosquito practice tonight, which is, you know, six and under, and we probably had 40 kids out there and at least 10 coaches. So, I mean, we had like groups of maybe five, six kids per coach, something like that, working on different skills at each station. So, I mean, those kind of things that they've taught, like when we were kids, we had two coaches and they ran full ice practices. And now you're getting a lot of attention from like individual coaching. And so, I mean, it's pretty cool. When you get to the higher levels, obviously it goes down, but you know, the young level, there's tons of coaches on the ice helping these kids out. So for all the listeners, the uh, Northern New York listeners, um, Greenway had a little episode the last uh, last week going down to the minors, scored a hat trick, got pulled right back up to the show, actually got his first NHL regular season goal last night. Pretty good goal. If anyone saw it, they uh, he was battling in front and um, two guys on him. And he just kept banging away till he batted that puck in the net. Got a little excited after the goal, as he should have. Yeah, I don't, I don't know who had a better celly, me, Greenway, or Patrick, because I flew <laughs> off the couch for sure. Yeah, I jumped off the couch too for sure. <laughs> well, that was a roller coaster he took, man. To go to be sent down, you know, and then kind of say, "Hey, fuck you guys!" Throw a hat <laughs> trick and throw a hat trick in, then come back up. What, next night, right, Pat? Did he have yeah, a goal? it couldn't have been scripted any better. I mean, the GM and uh, head coach wanted him to go down there and get some confidence, and fuck, he got a hat trick and brought him right back up. Couldn't have been scripted any better. Um, he's actually, this is his fifth game in six nights, so they're playing in Edmonton tonight, the Wild. And, um, I mean, we're not talking just regular pickup hockey. He's been in five games in the last six nights, AHL or higher. Yeah, he's I mean, probably beat to hell, man. You gotta be fucking exhausted. Absolutely. And you know, sometimes, you know, whatever. I mean, he's uber talented. Sometimes you need a fire lit under your ass, right? So I, maybe, maybe that was it, right? Patrick? Yeah, it seems yeah. like it worked. He just, uh, just got a high sticking penalty, Pat. I don't know if you want to hear that, but. Well, that's fine. Yeah, second nice. period. I don't know. I didn't see it. Just I'm um, sitting in the box, looking up at the scoreboard, trying to check out the replay. Hopefully they yeah. don't score here. But, I see uh, uh, Austin Matthews is out. Another shoulder injury. Yeah, four he's going to be out a minimum of four weeks. So that's uh, that's shitty for Toronto. And he was healthy his rookie season. Played played every game, and then last year he missed 21 games. And you know this now he's going to be out a minimum of four weeks. So that's kind of that's shitty for him trying to stay healthy. Was that shoulder related to you, Pat, the last one? All, I mean, he had shoulder issues um, 
before he went over to Europe in the juniors. So he said shoulder separated shoulder. I separated both my shoulders and uh, every t in playing hockey um, and every game after that, when I was clear to go back, every hurt, every hit, just you could feel it. Um, it's not fun. It actually kind of stings. So uh, even reaching out or stick handling or shooting bothers you. So um, we'll see what happens. But uh, I think uh, I think they'll be all right. They still got a pretty good offensive line or bunch of forwards. I think they'll have to tighten up on D a little bit. But I can actually see them slipping a little bit. So uh, we'll see what happens. They, they need to get him back ASAP. Yeah, some of their other forwards have been playing really well too. So, I mean, obviously they got JT. Um, he's been playing well. Kadri's stepped it up a little bit. Um, they also had what's his Marner? Is that, is that his name? He's been Marner. playing well. Yeah, he's been playing well too on that Austin Matthews line. So I'm not sure who's going to center that line now. Whether JT will come up and center that line or Kadri, um, but they're they're deep in the on the offensive end. It's just their their defense is a little bit light. JT centering the first line, Kadri centering the second, I guess. That's what they were saying. Somebody's got to step up. Did you guys see the hit that no. they put on him? None of his hits have been against the boards. They're all open ice hits. Uh, he took the puck and drove it hard to the net. And this defenseman, I think it was Truba of the Islanders? No, Winnipeg. Truba from Winnipeg. He must have been skating full steam from the blue line. You can't see him in the picture until until Matthews cuts towards the net and then Truba just friggin' flattens him and it was shoulder to shoulder. It looked like it stung. Yeah, that sucks, man. Injuries. What about McAvoy? What's his deal? He's not back in yet either, is he? No, I don't know. I haven't really been following that to be honest with you. I've Krug, been looking Krug's back. So they had yeah. Krug come back. So that was a big part of their defense that he was injured and he came back, but McAvoy went out. So it was kind of a flip-flop there for the Bruins. I've just been listening to all this MGM with uh, MGM Resorts. Getting sports betting, NHL, yeah. Yeah. And drinking. And drinking. So now you're going to be able to bet on some NHL games, huh, from your phone or wherever you want? Well, it, it seems to me I did a little research that MGM has been, you know, affiliated with the NHL for a while now. Actually, they started the uh, Frozen Furry uh, back in 97, I want to say. Um, so they would hold like a preseason game in Vegas. Um, some of them were outdoors, actually. I think they had an issue that the uh, they couldn't keep the compressors firing to keep the ice uh, cold, but... Uh, so then they were a big part of getting uh, a team out in Vegas. Um, so seems like they've been supporting hockey. So it's, it seems only right to, uh, you know, give them the opportunity to uh, partner with the NHL and give them all the, you know, since betting is going to go, you know, to all pro sports, um, who else would you want? Who else would the NHL give it to, right? I mean, they've been – being a partnership with the NHL since 1997. So I don't see it as a bad thing. I mean, it's um, politics, man. You, He's been helping each other out for a long time. One hand washes the other. No, but it's, uh, I, I think it's pretty cool. I mean, as far as 
being able to bet on sports, it's just legalized federally. So it's coming anyway. So um, the commissioner was on this morning talking about it and how he thought it was great. And it's supposed to bring in like $240 million to the NHL. So they're making money off it too. So it's going to help grow the league and make the league stronger. Yeah, they're talking about getting the old uh, puck and play back in involved. Um, back when we were kids, what year was that? we got to say the 90s, right? They had that little chip in the puck so you, people could follow it. That didn't last too long. I think that only lasted a season or two. Oh, where it had like a little like a little blue trailer on the puck? Exactly, yeah. yeah. So uh, I think with technology, it's probably gotten a little better. I don't know what they anticipate on doing, but uh, it's called the puck and play. So um, that's what they talk to. But MGM gets all the rights to all NHL emblems, all the insider stats that the NHL collects. Actually, MGM is coming up with more stats, and they're going to get together with the NHL. Um, I, I, I can't imagine any more stats. What the fuck? Like, how the refs can what ref drops the puck better i don't know but um all this is gonna you know go into the sports betting website so so that's kind of what kind of what mgm has in their hands they have pretty much anything the nhl has the nhl hands it over to them what else you want to get into boys what else is going on this week we got a lot of games tonight. I did want to say that, uh, you know, the Central Division, they got, uh, I think, most of the top. God, we got Nashville, who's leading the league. You got Colorado's right up there. Winnipeg's right up there. Chicago and Minnesota. So Central Central Division is doing really well. They uh, Then you got um, the goal scorers. Um, I think McKinnon's tied for second with the most points. And then... Miko Ratnan with 21 points for Colorado. Um, so the Central Division is pretty tough, man. Um, and, and also in the uh, Central Division, they're the only top two teams with double-digit goals, goals for. So there's a lot of scoring going on in the Central. You got most of the Central teams the top of the league. Um, so the Central League's doing pretty well. They got a lot of snipers and firepower. Um, so double digit goals for in the central. It's the only league, the only, uh, conference that has that. Yeah. The Atlantic's doing pretty well. I mean, the Vancouver Canucks are doing well out, um, out West. I mean, they beat the wild the other night, but they've been, they've been a surprise out there. They're still, still winning games. Yeah. Pedersen was good last night. Do you see him, Mark? Two goals. Yeah. Yeah. He just came back too. So. He's good. They're pretty happy to have him back in the lineup. We got a lot of games going on tonight. I think there was like seven or eight games playing right now. So, uh, yeah, Tuesday right, night's a big night. Right in the middle of everything right now. Everything's starting to uh, starting to take off. They got the, uh, I think some teams going over to Finland or play or something for all those NHL events. You know, you got the stadium series coming up. Yeah. Um, Pittsburgh and Philly. Pittsburgh and Philly. I think Chicago and someone's playing at uh, Notre Dame's arena outdoors. Um, so we got them coming up too. But, yeah, I love uh, it when it snows during those games. It's pretty cool. Yeah, right. 
some old time pond hockey shit. But lots of good stuff. I mean, uh, the Rangers still aren't producing. I don't know. We still have some coaches on the hot seat. I mean, the coach of the Kings, I don't know what's going to happen there. I think he's going to be one to go if they don't start winning. I think he's going to be on the hot seat. He is on the hot seat right now. So we'll see what happens. But uh... I don't think Quinter is expected to win a hell of a lot of games. So he's probably not in any hot seat yet. No. I think you're start, you're starting to see though a little bit of the uh you know the con- we were talking a couple podcasts ago about teams that were in the you know in the lead in each division and stuff like that and you you're starting to kind of see this kind of sort itself out a little bit. Yeah. And each you know what I mean like you know how I was saying I think it was a little bit too early to get ahead of ourselves with certain teams you're starting to see kind of the the cream float to the top in each one now and you're kind of getting a little bit better picture of each one. But I'm I'm super surprised to see the New York Islanders though. At, you know, up are they are they kind of creeping their way up a little bit in the Metropolitan? Yeah, they, they beat the uh, Penguins tonight. Isn't that weird? Six three. I mean, another thing we want to touch on was Sidney Crosby had a slow start, but then he uh, had some pretty sick goals the last couple of games. I don't know if you guys caught the highlights, but they were yeah. uh, Crosby esque. Yeah, well, I mean, they, we were talking about Pittsburgh. They're actually, you know, starting to climb up the ladder slowly. I mean, you just said they lost tonight, but. Before tonight, they won their last four, and then Crosby's been on the highlights. Um, all it seems like all those lines are start. They just seem like they started slow, but now they're firing on all cylinders. Um, they're plus fourteen, plus minus goals four, and uh, I bet you you'll see them. They're just they're coming on. They're gonna start climbing. Yeah, and you gotta you gotta put the Wild in there, man. They they lost to uh, Vancouver, but they had won five straight. So they've been playing well. But that Edmonton tonight. That Central League so tough though. I mean, yeah, they did win five, but fuck, they they stayed in the same position. I mean, they're still, you know, down there in the middle of the pack. So uh, it's going to take a lot to get Minnesota to move up. They're definitely going to need a W tonight against Edmonton. Um, they're on a long, long road, you know, away games road road trip here. So. Yeah, 17 days or something like that before they come home. Yeah. Well, I think they'll come home in be- after tonight. I'm sure they'll fly out, and then they'll fly back out. I think they have, like, two or three days off. Yeah, something like 17 days without a home game. So yeah, that's tough playing on the road for that long, especially getting Ws. So, I mean, that's uh, that's pretty much what's going on in the NHL. We have college hockey happening, I think. Uh, St. Lawrence went out to Michigan and uh, dropped a couple out there. But anybody catch what happened in Clarkson last weekend? I didn't. I, I saw Clarkson women's loss to uh, Wisconsin. I think Wisconsin's ranked number one right now in um, women's, and Clarkson's in third place. Yep, St. Lawrence women's beat Clarkson the other day, so that was a big win. And then they had another big win after that, I believe, last week. So. Just getting into college hockey, so we'll talk about a little bit about what's going on locally here with St. Lawrence and Clarkson in the next uh, few podcasts. Keep up on that, what's going on in uh, ECAC at least, and some of the bigger names uh, as well for college hockey. So tune in to get all your college hockey and NHL updates, as well as some pretty cool interviews with some interesting people throughout the hockey world. And uh, that's been a good podcast tonight. And until next time, folks, keep your stick on the ice. 
tell you. Bill. Peters. National Cat Day. Keep your head up. Meow. National Cat Day. Ha, <laughs>